My three books are The Godfather by Mario Puzo, Letters to the Church by Francis Chan, The Autobiography of George Muller by George Muller. Welcome to another episode of My Three Books. Such an exciting journey we've been on over this last number of episodes uh, since we come back after Christmas. Um, we've had uh, some really good conversations and we've got to know some interesting people who are very good friends of mine. So I really hope you've appreciated hearing from them. Well, today uh, I've, I've travelled again out of my kitchen and I'm now in uh, the living room or the dining room, maybe, uh, of another good friend of mine, David Lavery. Hello, David. Hello, Mark. Uh, David is, uh, uh, so, well, actually, I'm going to get into tell, as we do this every week, actually, I'm going to get into telling you more about him um, and, and who he is, and, and we'll get into what he does in a bit, but it's just thrilling to be here with him, too. Uh, two of his books I've not come across, one of them you will have come across in a previous podcast episode, so it'll be interesting to compare the two. Um, so without further ado, David, you've said good morning, and the people might have picked up from that that slight accent that maybe you're not quite from round here. So where are you from originally? I'm originally from Glasgow ah, in okay. Scotland. Okay. For those of you who haven't heard of Glasgow. And uh, yeah. yeah, I've been down in England now for 40 years this year. Wow. So yeah, so I moved down here when I was 13. Okay. You do the maths. Yeah, so, that's a long yeah, time. Yeah. 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 So you moved down here when you was 13. Yes. And you've still got a good a good accent, a strong Scottish accent. Well, I've actually I lived in Yorkshire for probably 20 years. I lived in Wales for 10 years. Lived in the Midlands for about six or seven years. So I've lived all over the place, really, but I've never found an accent I preferred to my own. <laughs> so I do have... I think the Welsh... I've managed to pick up a lot of Welsh-isms without actually the accent. There's little Welsh words and little ways of saying things yeah. that I've picked up, but never actually picked up the accent. Well, in our, so, in our kind of preamble while we were doing the sound testing, David... David spoke a little bit of Welsh. Do you want to just give us a bit of Welsh again? And I can tell well, you what well, the, well, the Welsh that I know, I learned from road signs and watching um, Italian football with a Welsh commentary back in the 1990s. Because in Wales, they used to have a, a TV show called Scorio on S4C. So on a Monday night, we'd get Italian and Spanish football. So I learned a lot of my little Welshisms from that. So, you know, things like uh, Milan are a blind, you know, Milan are ahead, Nachi goal. You know, goal have read all these kind of things, really. So, so I picked my Welsh up mainly by listening to it did, on TV did you, shows. Didn't you say the Welsh National Anthem, though, or something? Well, yeah, well, I, I learned the first few lines of the Welsh okay. National Anthem. Go ahead, go on. Go Sorry, on. you sing it or say it? Yeah, whichever you'd like. Well, I won't sing it, really. Let's <laughs> not do that, really. But, yeah, my hen Vlad van Hadai an an oily me, glad byr the chantorion en wogion overy. And the only reason I did it was so that when I went to uh, Welsh football or rugby games, which I often did, because well, quite a lot of Welsh people don't actually speak Welsh, you see. So when I went to a Welsh football game with some Welsh friends and I knew their national anthem better than they did, that always got a bit of a reaction and made me laugh, you see. So. And were they quite proud as well that, that you knew that, that, that you, know, you were able to... I think they were more embarrassed that I knew and they didn't, you see. Oh, that's, no. the, that's the oh, thing. No. So, yeah. <laughs> So, um, are, you, are you a bit of a sports fan? Are you, do you... Yeah, I love sports. I'm a, well, I'm a, I'm a football fan mainly, yeah. okay. and uh, a Glasgow Celtic fan mostly. So that's my, uh, that's my, I won't say my first love, but certainly it's <laughs> up there um, in terms of uh, my uh, my passions really. Mm -hmm. So I travel up to Glasgow a few times a year oh, and get great. to games, and very rarely miss a game on TV if I can help it. Yeah, so. brilliant, brilliant. So. T tell us more about you, David. Are you married with kids? Yeah, I'm married to Karen, and uh, Karen is a uh, well. She's she's done a number of jobs really. She trained as a nurse, then she did a PGC and trained as a secondary school teacher. Um, she went back into school nursing, which is like a community nurse, more of a a, a nurse that works in the community. And in March, she's going to be uh, starting work as a university lecturer, and she's actually going to be training nurses. Um, over in Bradford uh, on a university course oh, over there. Crazy. So yeah, it's a job she's always wanted to do, and she's finally sort of achieved her goal. So yeah, uh, so yeah, and then in, a, in a, a few well, a few weeks now, isn't it? A few weeks time, she actually starts her her new job, really, which uh, I'm sure she will love. Yeah. And uh, I'm the father of two daughters, um, both of whom are in their twenties. My oldest girl is called Hope, and she followed her mum into nursing, 
and she's a children's nurse over in Liverpool. And my younger daughter is in her final year at university and she's doing business studies down in Leicester. Wow. So that's my two girls. Do you know if she plans to do that degree or she wants where she wants to go? Or? Well, she's applying for all sorts of jobs. She did a she did a year in industry that she enjoyed. It's to do with just it's marketing really and it's mm. and she also does Spanish as well. So I think she's looking to work for an international company with a hopefully an opportunity to travel. I think that's the dream. Mm. But she does get married in June this oh, year, wow. and I think I think well, yes. But I think the um, I think the fact that she's getting married will probably uh, shape some of her decisions as to where she works and where she lives and those kind of things. <laughs> yeah, you, so, would have, you would have thought that would have been Yeah, yeah. She's not quite as free as she thought she was going to be at this stage of her life. Really, but, but anyway, he's a lovely boy. We're very happy to have him, and uh, and Lester's not too far away, so we oh. can. It's, it's only a, a couple of hours to go and visit her. So, no, if I don't know if I mentioned actually, uh, I moved from my kitchen to Wakefield. This is where we're at. Yes. This morning, this is where I find myself. Um, so good to kind of hear what you what your wife's doing, what your kids are doing. Let's finally get on to what. Do you do for uh, for a living? For uh, I don't know, however you want to phrase that. Well, I wouldn't say <laughs> say what I do for a living, but certainly. Um, That's why I was hesitant. I wasn't quite sure really how to yeah, how, how you to would, plan how what you would doing. say. It. Um, yeah, well, I I before I, I did my present job, I was a servant police officer. I was a police officer in uh, first of all in Warwickshire Police in the Midlands, and then I was in South Wales Police. But um, I've been a, a Christian for a long time. And uh, before I did anything with the police, I went to Bible school um, way back in the early 90s and, and did some training uh, so to go into full-time ministry. No, the Bible school was in Coventry. Ah. So it was a Bible school in okay. Coventry, and that's how we stayed in the Midlands for a few years after that. Actually, Bible school <laughs> did more to put me off full-time ministry than make me <laughs> want to do it. But the police had always been an ambition, and so eventually I went into the police. Yeah. After a few years in the police, I just found that... Um, not that I didn't enjoy it. I loved the job. I really yeah, did enjoy it. The conversations we've had about yeah. there just seemed to be a spark in your eye. Oh, I loved it. it. I thoroughly enjoyed yeah. it and I had a great time. And, and to me, it was one of, the, one of the experiences that really shaped me as a person because, of course, you see so much, you experience so much. And the police, as an organisation, does so much to, to help you in your own confidence and how you deal with situations and, and give you a view of life, which I, I found has been invaluable in what I've done subsequently. But in uh, uh, back in 2004, I left the police and went to work for a, a church down in South Wales for a year, um, setting up a, a debt charity for them, Christians Against Poverty. So I set up their office down in Swansea and did that for a year. And then at the end of, um, at the end of 2004, I was asked to come up to Yorkshire, to York, to lead a church up in York. And so I came out of the police in the beginning of 2005. Was that, was that a... Did, did you feel that it was such a right thing to do that it wasn't a problem or was there a bit of a wrench? To, well, it's one of those things. I think when you've got a call of God, when you know you've got a call of God, you feel that you were born for something else. You can't fully settle in what you're doing. And, I'm, and though I enjoyed the police, I always had this sense that this wasn't what I was meant to be doing with my life. And I met a lot of, uh, I met a lot of uh, men and women in the police who had maybe joined me when they were about 20, were retiring at 50, which obviously is, is, is my sort of age now, and actually had no plan. And having, having done a job which was so involved, to then be looking at the next perhaps 20, 30 years and doing something, you know, going into retirement, that, that really affected me. I thought, I don't want to do that. I want to, I want to commit my life to something that I can do until the day that... That I drop, you know, <laughs> <laughs> drop dead. And um, but yeah, but I just always had this sense that, yeah, that, that, yeah. that because I'm a believer in, in God, I had a, a sense that God had something else different for my life. Mm. I felt with the police as well. Some it's a bit like you you're a bit of a sticking plaster. You can sort of you can fix some things, but not really, because unless you can change the heart of people, you're never going to really change society. You're almost as if you're keeping a lid on things. That's what I felt. I felt like I was keeping lids on things, but they were just always coming up again. And I thought, I want to actually do something that really changes lives and changes families and, and, uh, and helps people. And because I saw, because of the type of people you mainly deal with in the police, you're dealing with people that are generational, um, you know, criminals, some of them, you know, granddad was a burglar, son's a burglar, grandson's a burglar, you know, and, and, and you think, well, these, a lot of these kids have got no chance because they, the way they've been, they've been brought up. And I thought, if we're ever going to change families and actually change lives, we've got to deal with some root things and not just 
what I'm doing. So th there's a number of reasons why I did what I did and came out of the police, but those, those were, I would say, were the main ones. Mm. How did your, so you're obviously, you're Christian for many years. Yep. Um, how, did that conflict in any, any point with, with your, um, you know, duties as a police officer or did those things happily go hand in hand or did one neither affect the other apart from obviously you and your morals and things like that? Um, well, of course, I mean, I've, I've been out of the, the police service now for 16 years, well, 15 years. And, um, and I think society has changed a lot in that time. Um, you know, and I, I think it's, I think it's harder now to be a person of faith and conviction because when, you know, you, you, you deal with people whose lifestyles in the police, you might not necessarily approve of, but you treat everybody fairly. You, everybody is, everybody's treated fairly and we've got the same level of service and, and, um, you know, uh, I would say justice, no matter who they are or, or what their background or what their lifestyle was. Whereas these days, you're not even allowed to, to have a different view. You have to be um, very pro everything really, haven't you? And, and I think there's a there's a there's an agenda now. I think which makes it really difficult for people in public service jobs to to have a faith and to be able to to um, fulfil their their occupation. That's what that's the impression I get from speaking to people that are still in the police. That yeah. the political correctness and the woke culture that we now have makes it really difficult to be a person of faith. Sure. And um, and I really hope that, that the the pendulum swings back again because for me, um, there's a lot of really good people that that could be in public service jobs that won't simply because of the culture now that is prevailing, particularly in the UK and mm. and in America. Mm. Wow, we nearly got political then, didn't we? That's, uh... Well, <laughs> <laughs> nearly. We nearly did, but I, yeah. absolutely. Um, um, you can always edit me out afterwards. No, 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 <laughs> not at all. Won't do that at all. This podcast is is as much about the people as it is about the books. So it's 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 really interesting to hear your perspective, and I'm sure a lot of people out there will will probably nodding their heads in agreement. So uh, thank you, thank you for that. Thank you for sharing that about who you are. We'll we'll move on to your your books now, um, and like I said, two of them. Are, I mean, obviously, one of them, uh, which is the first one we're going to explore, which is The Godfather. Okay. By Mario, I mean, sadly, we pronounce his surname Puzzo. That's how I've always pronounced yeah, it. It could be Puzzo, but Puzzo sounds more Italian, yeah, doesn't it? Puzzo, Mario Puzzo. Uh, and this is your, your fiction book. And obviously, I have heard of The Godfather in terms of the movie. I did know it came from a book as well. But, yes. Um, or the series of movies, actually, isn't there? Well, yeah, the series of movies came out of the one book. Yeah, yeah. today. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, and I, I can't... Even, that, even though I've heard of the movies, I've never actually sat down and watched them. It's not a... What? A, yeah, it's not a genre that I, I would normally kind of have any... The Godfather is the greatest movie of all time. <laughs> I can't believe you've never seen it. Well, I'm, I'm sorry. I I've got all the DVDs if you want to borrow oh, them. Okay, so. all right, all right. <laughs> maybe, maybe I'll do that. Maybe we'll start with the book, though. Okay. Um, so, so, The Godfather. Um, clearly, uh, it's, it's a book about the Mafia. Yes. Um, uh, uh, that's, uh, you know, that's, that's the overarching thing, isn't it? But it's about a family. Um, so go ahead, let's, let's fill, in, fill in the blanks for me, because that's about as far as my knowledge goes. Well, for the very few people who may listen to this that have never seen or heard of The Godfather, <laughs> I will do a, a sort of brief synopsis of the book. I'm staggered that a man has never seen The Godfather. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I, I bow <coughs> my head in shame. That's okay. Well, I think I, I, I saw the movie before I ever read the book. That's but um, uh, yeah, because of course, when you read the book, there's obviously a lot more to the, 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 the written word and the, the written story than you get in the movie. But yeah, I just always, I always loved the film. And, I, and the, of course, it was 1973. It was the best, uh, uh, best picture Oscar back in 1973 yeah. and had Al Pacino and then... I'm trying to think now, you know, you're testing me now, trying to remember who played no, all the You wouldn't have watched that. Played all the characters. No, I wouldn't. I was only no. six at the oh, time. So I, didn't, I didn't see it then, but I did, you know, I mean, obviously I'm aware of the film and then uh, I'm not, I can't quite remember when I probably saw it. I mean, I would imagine, well, believe it or not, we didn't have a TV in our family until I was about 12 because uh, my mum and dad didn't really want one in the house. So if I saw it before 12, I would have watched it at a friend's house or at my grand's. So that's probably where I watched it if I saw it. But anyway, so I love the I love the, the film, and um, and then I think probably when I was about fourteen or fifteen. I finally got the book and actually read the book. And okay. of course, it's just I mean the story. I mean it's it's totally um, 
amoral, isn't it? Because I mean, it's not. I mean, for somebody that's that's been in law enforcement as I have and has been brought up as a Christian, it's the complete opposite <laughs> um, to anything that I ever knew or or my own upbringing. Maybe yeah. that's why I, I found it so that fascinating. Is, that is very interesting yeah. that you, you raise that. It is just counter to yeah. everything that you're yeah, totally. doing. Totally. I have no dreams of being a mafioso or, or, or being that sort of life. But I just always found the book, the, the you know, the story fascinating anyway, because yeah. of course. It's the story of immigrant, an immigrant who um, has to leave Italy um, and who get, gets his way to America and then basically has to start with nothing um, in America. So um, is, it, is it based around one singular character? So when I said it, I feel like there's a, there's, it's based around a family. Well, that wouldn't quite be true then? It, it is based around this... this, this well, it's, it starts off, obviously, the Godfather yeah. starts off with the, 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 the main character, um, Vito Corleone, who arrives from Italy. Well, said it was an Italian. Vito Corleone, yeah. who arrives from Italy as a young man, yeah. uh, sort of penniless, and builds a business, starts to build a business, starts to work for his family, but eventually um, realises that the only way he's ever going to get ahead in life, in the culture that he's in, wow. is if he starts bumping off. Um, wow. so, they, in, so in the book, he's, and obviously in the movie, I guess, as well, yeah. he, he wants to go on the straight and narrow to begin with. He starts off law-abiding, yeah. Just and finds that inter- quite yeah. frustrating. But basically, the, the mafia at the time and in, in the, the period that the book is set in the early part of the, the 20th century, you know, they, um, the, sort of the local mafia dons are, are bullies and, and he eventually sort of goes and he bumps off the local mafia don and of course that gets him respect in the community and the story goes from there how his family then goes into um, gets yeah. into crime and becomes a an organization which eventually if you follow the story all the way through starts to affect you know senators and and um so you know, goes, the, the, government. Kind of the political oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. We, yeah. We, we start to affect it and of course the story is um you and know, just to say guys yeah. there, there probably will be spoilers on this one it hasn't it's been out for a long time. It has been so, out for a long time. You're um, almost fifty years. So yeah, we'll maybe try and not give everything away, but uh, you know, to get to get some idea of this story because it has been out a long time. I think we can forgive any spoilers that are about to happen. So <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> I can't remember what I was saying. What did, uh, where was I going? We got to um, him going up the pyramid. And, you know, yeah, yeah, of course, going up the pyramid. But the, I think the interesting thing is, you know, now you can, there's lots of documentaries and you can actually see there's lots of parallels between, you know, I think I think the guy that wrote the, the, the book, Puzzo, must have had some understanding of the culture, some connection within the mafia world, because a lot of the things that he was writing about, some of it was actually based on genuine stories and so genuine people. there's quite a lot of, seemingly a lot of authenticity. Oh, yeah. It? It's not, it's not, yeah. A, it's not a, a cartoonised version, if you like. No, no, no. I mean, like I say, there's, there's certain things which, you know, and I'm, I'm, for the sake of, um, not for spoilers really, but for the sake of being sued, you know, for example, <laughs> you know, there's, there's a particular part of the story where, where um, one of the Godfather's nephews is in show business and um, wants to get a particular acting part and he can't get this acting part because the studio head won't do it. And basically comes to the Godfather, asks for some help, and by by nefarious means um, bullies the studio head into giving the guy uh, the part that he wanted. And you know, allegedly, allegedly, I'm saying uh, this was based on a real life Italian American singer yeah, of the 1950s who shall know. remain nameless. You can tell you uh, used to be a police officer. That's so you right. Know yeah. the right words. You've got to be very, very careful. Yeah, what you say. But yeah, I mean, apparently that was based on your. Supposed to be based on fact with really. it, so there's lots of bits of the story which are partly of, of a thread of truth. Mean, well, yeah, yeah, we won't yeah. say it, will okay. we? Okay, no, yeah. we won't. <laughs> we'll keep that as a little mystery, people can find it for themselves. Okay, all right. So, so, um, uh, so you've got this this character, uh, which obviously then uh, becomes a family. Um, so, what portion of the book is about him and his? kind of legal journey how quickly does it get into the action as it were how quickly does it get into the bumping off characters and this that and the other is it, is it oh well, is it sl- in other words is it a slow burner or does it, is well, it well it's a thick book if you've ever seen the book it's not a it's not a quick read it's not like a you know a, a mills and boone novelette it is a you know a fairly yeah, yeah. hefty tome okay and um, it takes a while to get through right. and uh, no i think it's a well-paced book which is interesting because um the kind of book i mean when i read fiction these days um, the, the, my favourite author, sort of fiction writer, would be John Grisham. I read a lot of John Grisham, and with yeah. John Grisham, of course, it's very slow burning. It's very um, the pace is is a lot, um, you know, more easy going. And Grisham spends an awful lot of time painting pictures and drawing the scene and building characters. And so the story with a Grisham book never really gets exciting to the last two chapters. 
But I like that um, these days because often I'll read a few chapters before I go to sleep at night. So I always enjoy the story, but I'm very happy. A, a Grisham book I can pick up and put down over weeks or months, whereas something like The Godfather, yeah, I couldn't put it down. Is it, a, so, so it is a oh, little page turner. It's a great page turner, I, yeah. I thought. So anyway, yeah. um, you know, when I first read it, I mean, I think I've read it probably three times in my life oh now, my goodness, right. um, okay. going back. Because if you leave a book a few years, you can, you can yeah. enjoy it again. And sometimes, if, I, if the movie's on TV, which it usually is once a year somewhere, um, that'll inspire me to pick the book up again and, and have another go through it, really. so. Well, considering what we said earlier, which was, you know, you, you're a Christian, you were a police officer, yet you were very attracted to, to this story. What is it? What is it that made, that's made you kind of pick it up again and again? Just, just well, there's certain things in the story which are, which are great. It, it, I've, heard, I've heard people... Um, I've heard testimonies... Of, of guys that were involved in gangs and involved in crime, crime families, if you like, or crime sort of uh, uh, clans that became Christians. And one of the things that they say was the thing that attracted them was the whole thing of family and loyalty, um, you know, within, within their organisation. There was a deep sort of loyalty in that. And you see that, the whole, the, you know, part of the great story in The, the Godfather is the whole thing of this, this family loyalty, this... Um, uh, again, I'm trying to think of the the the, the term they use, but this is this we don't we don't speak about anything. We don't we don't um, we don't uh, drop each other in it. We've got to have this bond of loyalty to death, you know. Um, and that's that's even for people who are not part of um, the mafia. <laughs> that's quite an attractive thing, isn't it? Sure. There's a there's a level of commitment to one another. There's a level of um, there's an honouring. There's an honour of one absolutely. And even within that, uh, there's a there's a structure, there's an honouring of the structure as well. Um, I think one of the things that I you know that I, I enjoyed in the police, um, you know, was the fact that, that you you can honour you honour the position, you honour the the rank of somebody. You might not even like the person, but the, but the the way that the, the organisation works because there's an honour of for you know as a PC, there's an honour of a sergeant. If a sergeant says something, you do it. And uh, as a policeman, you know, I, my the two sergeants that I had on my shift, I really got on well with them. I'm friends with them to this day, you know, all these years later. And uh, they were called Mike and Jeff. And when we went for a game of snooker, we had a pint. They were Mike and Jeff. But when we were on duty, it was sergeant when they said something. Of course, yeah. And I and and I think that's a, I think honour and um, and loyalty um, is a really is a, a really big thing for me personally. So I like that, and I think that's one of the things that I like. Um, in the in the story of the Godfather as well. Any any particular character other than than the the, the initial one that you that you, you you hear about you read about? Is there any 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 particular character that you felt more attracted to that you you, you enjoyed reading about hearing of their exploits? Well, of course, the story um, the story goes from the father Vito Corleone, who's the original Godfather, mm. and who who eventually dies. But it's his young not his younger it's his youngest son. Well, he gets yeah he dies, he does he dies of a stroke in the end again you've you've you asked me to spoil the story for somebody I did, but I did. but eventually he goes but <laughs> but the son Michael who takes over knows what his family business is but has no intention of ever being involved he's a soldier in the Second World War and basically a bit like his dad gets drawn into the life completely by accident right because the father gets um, there's an assassination attempt on the father um, and then the eldest brother who's the natural successor Sonny he gets. Um, assassinated as well. So basically, to protect his own family, and the, obviously his wider family, the youngest son Mike ends up having to take over wow. from the father and a life that he never wanted. And he's even he, he marries, uh, he's or he's engaged to a girl who um, you know is a sort of a, a you know American, not Italian American from outside that family. And you can see that his, his aim is to build a life outside of that whole organisation. And I think his dad wants that for him as well, but because of circumstances, he ends up um, taking over the family and in time becomes even more ruthless than his father or his oh, brother wow. ever were. Interesting. I which gonna, is, I was going to say, does the book then explore that tension of him not really wanting to be in it, yeah. wanting to be out of it? But Godfather Part it, 2 and Godfather Part 3, you see, if, right. you, if you follow the movies. Okay, okay. <laughs> and the movies come out of this one book, that's what you said to me. Yeah, yeah. Right? There's no sequel to the books, it's just one big Well, book. if there was, I've not seen it, and I would okay. have read it by now. So. <laughs> So yeah, I find that interesting that, that there's that initial tension. He doesn't want to be in his life. He's drugged into the life. But then, yeah. Uh, um, I said, sorry, I said yes then on, on the podcast. I'm being poured another coffee, which is lovely. Well, I'm, I'm pouring myself another coffee. Do you want another coffee? I'll pour you another coffee as well. Oh, that's such a lovely sound. I know. 
<laughs> um, Sorry so, to spoil your train no, of thought, Mark. You carry fine. on. No, no. So we have this tension, but then he, like you say, he, he seemingly becomes more ruthless yeah. than his father. So yeah. It triggers something. It changes him morally uh, in all sorts of different ways. Well, things that he's trying to protect his family, and I think that, that that's the thing. You know, but yeah, it's interesting. Because Loyalty again, to the family. That, 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 that sense of family comes yeah. before anything else. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it just even even makes him do things that he wouldn't have to begin with done. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. So you, you clearly love it. Um, big thick book. Uh, what, what would you what would you recommend the the, the movie or the book first? Because you saw the movie first, then the book. Uh, now clearly the books always give you more detail than the movies, but that seemed to. The movies, I would always recommend the book uh, yeah. because I always think with the book, you're, you're painting pictures with um, your own mind. Of course, if I read the book now, I'm picturing the, I'm the, picturing the, 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 the people, aren't I? I can, yeah, yeah. I can see Al Pacino and, yeah. and uh, Robert De Niro and all these guys, you know, whereas when you read the book originally, you don't have that. You, that, can, create your own, you can create your own you world, can't you? Yeah, Which absolutely. is one of the great things about being lost in a book, and that's why people love fiction, don't they? So. Which is the autobiography? The autobiography, yeah, of, of George Muller. George Muller. Who's George Muller? Um, Muller. Well, probably best to start with how I ended up reading the book. Uh, you know, it. just because yeah. there's a yeah. there's a well, um, the the book initially was given to me by um, the pastor of my church when I was about twenty years old, and um, and. You know, my own story had was would be that really I was as a teenager I was very wayward, and, um, and my life was really going nowhere. And I moved out to South Wales um, to be with a guy that was that was going to really help me. To really was a big influence in shaping my own life, and he was called Mike, and uh, so he was the pastor of this church down in South Wales. And as part of my sort of training, my discipleship, if you like, in, in shaping me, he he gave me this book to read, and I'd never heard of George Muller. And, um, but George Muller was a German, young German guy in the 1800s and um, again uh, was a real tearaway during his youthful years. He had a real encounter with God um, and to cut the, the very long story short, he ended up moving across to England and he founded a series of orphanages so what, in what Bristol. Year, what year are we talking about? Oh what gosh! Now again, you're you're going back to well, you're going back to the end of the the nineteenth century, so way back then, so I've been early part of the twentieth century. So the the orphanages in Bristol, as far as I'm aware, are still there, and Muller's a well known historical figure in Bristol, although let's say German born. Um, but the, the the thing about the story, and I guess it's a few years since I've read it, but it was the reason I I put it in my my list of three books was because I was trying to think of three books that perhaps impacted me the most and had the biggest impact in my life. And this was the first real Christian book I think I ever read. And, um, but the story, um, I could see parallels with my own life within this book in that, you know, the guy was um, really going nowhere, was not very, was not very spiritual, was not really, um, um, had any, didn't have any real direction in his life. And then he encounters God God really gets hold of him and he ends up giving his life completely to the service of others. He ends up serving um, the orphan community in Bristol. Now, this, this was back in the days, there was no welfare state, um, there was no charities where you had, you know, where people were, were, were you know, making charitable donations. This was a complete faith venture. And the story really is a story of faith, how by prayer 
and just trusting God, he managed to build orphanages and feed thousands upon thousands of children every day for years and years and years up until the day he died. It is one of the most inspiring stories. And um, and really, it, 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 the book itself really gripped me when I read it and, and again impacted me because I, I thought, well, that's the life I want to lead. I want to live a life that's on the edge. I want to live a life of faith mm-hmm. um, where I'm really trusting God for everything that I've got and allowing him to sort of set the direction. Mm-hmm. And so it's taken me 30 years from reading that book, but I feel like I'm finally doing now what, what I was always meant to be doing, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does make so that's sense. why it's come up recently. Yeah, so are there any particular stories that you remember? Um, because I imagine it, it's not biography, so it'll be moments of his life. Yeah. So are there any, any, anyone that can well, stand out to you? Well, the, there was kind of regular things that happened. So for example, on, on, a, on a given day, the kids would all be, you know, these are hundreds of kids in an orphanage and there's basically no food and there's no money to buy any food. And he starts to so pray. The cupboards are bare. The are bare, yeah. And he starts to pray. Um, and outside, um, the wagon falls off a milk tr- a milk lorry, and basically um, they can't deliver it, and so they they they, they, give, they, the they give it to the orphanage, or something happens with a bread van. You know, there was these kind of stories where something basically these unusual um, events would happen, seemingly you know in response to prayer. Now people would look at that and say, "Oh, it was just a coincidence." Yeah. But it happened so many times over so many years, you know. That's an awful lot of coincidences, you know, for for you know for these things to um, you know to be just yeah. that. So so it's just just a great story of faith and God's provision, even when the circumstances were stacked against him. And those kind of I love those underdog stories, really, where you really are relying on God. So he's clearly a moral man, a man who had, had compassion and empathy and and wanted to make a difference in these children's lives. What, what, I mean, it's not autobiography, so um, what, what else is he like? What is he, what is he like as a man? What other things stand out? Well, again, it's interesting. Sometimes you read, you read biographies. Yeah. So, for example, um, you know, there's a, the biography of Smith Wigglesworth, who's, you know, again, very famous in Yorkshire as, a, as an evangelist. But when people write a biography, sometimes they write in such glowing terms. Yeah, rose-tinted glasses. Really rose-tinted glasses. And this is no fault of, of you know, Smith Wigglesworth or anyone else, but some people, they write it in such heroic terms that this person is unattainable. Mm. You know, that their whole lifestyle is unattainable. They're just so wonderful. You can never be like Oh, yeah. Person. The famous Smith Wigglesworth biography that I read, you know, it, it calls him our great heart. You know, it's our great heart. as the, oh, wow. the hero of the story sort of consistently refers to him. I think with Muller's autobiography, he it's a bit of a warts and all. I mean, he is very happy to admit his own failures, his own weaknesses, his own struggles. And to me, that makes him as a, as a, a hero of faith more accessible. Because I think every one of us has struggles and failings and weaknesses and often feels unworthy um, of our calling or unworthy of any um, favour from God, if you like. And... Um, and I think Muller was the same, you know, there was a great humility about the man, a great humility. Um, does, he, about does he talk about some of those struggles then directly? Yeah, I think the, the same struggles that we all face, you know, romantic struggles and, ah, okay. you know, temptation struggles and, yeah. and um, you know, uh, fear and um, maybe times when he wanted to give up and walk away. All those kind of things come out in his, in his story, mm-hmm. but yet he clings on to God, he clings on to his faith, and he, he powers on through. And again, all of us, I think, go through those moments in life, uh, particularly if you're in some kind of Christian ministry where you think, what have I done, why am I doing this, and why did I ever give up this old job that I had before? And um, so, so those kind of stories for me are helpful. I've always liked Christian leaders that were accessible. I like people that will admit this is this life is not easy. This is tough at times. Mm-hmm. Rather than people that which are so glowing, they're almost mm-hmm. on a Christ-like status that yeah. you can't yeah, <laughs> yeah. unapproachable light. So, so what did he? What else did he do in his life? And obviously, the the the, the um, 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 orphanage is is a major part of his life and a motivation for what he did. What what else did did, did George do? Well, I think that's the main story of his life. That's when, right. when people think of him, and even that in itself, I think is 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 wonderful, isn't it? These days, we live in a a, a culture of celebrity where people want to be famous, 
and want to be seen as having done something, you know, published author of so many books and, you know, or, TV or, or series. Or they want to be an influencer. Oh, absolutely, influencer, absolutely. Like it's, you know, one of the impressive things about Muller is, is that um, I think probably during his lifetime he was an unsung hero. When you think about it, Bristol's not London, it's not the capital. You know, most of what he did during his life would, would have been unseen to the world at large. Mm. And even in his own story, he talks about the way that God provided. And he said, I didn't have a mailing list. I didn't have a church that was backing me and providing money. Did, did, he he did wasn't he, part of a big organisation. So, so did he feel a, 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 just a pull to Bristol then? Um, yeah, I think, yeah. I mean, it, was a, it was a particular leading of, of God to get there. But the, I think my point would be, that one of the things that I love about him and his humility is that there's, in the world that we live in now and, and in the Christian world we live in, with with Twitter and with Instagram and with you know websites and with uh, so-called Christian TV channels, there's too many Christian leaders, in my opinion, that want to be famous, that want to be known, that want to be up there. Um, and actually, most most of us will never achieve that. Most Nine, of us, of course, absolutely. And and so if you if you're never going to be famous in the in the the, the Christian world at large. Sometimes perhaps you can maybe feel as if, well, I'm I'm a, I'm a failure. But actually, you know, to to have a to be put in a place where you may be unknown, you may be unseen, but you know that what you're doing is something that God's given you to do, and you can just plow away at that, knowing that ultimately your recognition and your reward will come after this life is over. You know, that's a great thing, and I think that's um, for me. Um, you know, some of the steps that I've taken in my own life, you know, would seem to be maybe backward steps in terms of in terms of what I could have been doing. But actually, what I am doing is what I know that I'm meant to be doing, and that might mean that no one's ever heard of me apart from your podcast if it becomes world famous. You know, no one will have heard of me, but that's okay because I feel that what I'm doing is what God has called me to do, and I can kind of plow on and go. So, on with those it. things you're talking about uh, are being to, to advance the police and what have you. you you've, you've not taken those opportunities. Yeah, you could. You felt called to preserve yeah. ministry. Yeah. yeah, well, I mean, even in, even in terms of like churches and stuff, you could, you know, to, to go from what I've done, leading a, a, a larger church, to actually you know, doing something now where there's only a handful of us working, sure, within no, most people's eyes, be like a backward step. Well, well let's, let's just cover that a little bit, because we, okay. didn't, we didn't, right, at the beginning. So of course, abandoned. of course, did, yeah, we, of course, yeah. We didn't talk about something that's quite significant. Yeah. Know? So um, I'm sure the listeners won't mind if we just deviate just slightly from the book and just just talk about what, what you're doing right now, which is so different from what you have been doing with being the police yep. and obviously leading a large church in, in Wakefield and what have you well I think large is one of the okay. uh, it's one of those kind of phrases you know, do, you know a lot, it's, it's interesting people say large but it depends on what you're comparing it to you know right. there's churches in Korea where there's 800,000 people you know that's large yeah exactly yeah. exactly. no I don't think the church I was leading was large but it certainly was not insignificant yeah. you know so but just um, like George here and this is why I think it's interesting to, to make a comparison because you, you've started making the comparison which is that he's doing something which won't make him world famous, won't make him, well, uh, I guess there are books about him now, but yeah. at the time, it wasn't something, he, he wasn't after that fame or that no. achievement. He, he just wanted to do what he felt called to do. Absolutely. And you yeah. felt called to come to Wakefield yeah. and plant a church. Yeah, well, well, Wakefield is interesting, you know, um, for those of you who don't know where Wakefield is or never heard of Wakefield, it's a, it's a city in the north of England, and when people ask you, you know, where are you from, you say Wakefield, and they, they look blankly at you, and you have to say, near Leeds, ah, <laughs> Leeds, we've heard of, you see. That's quite, yeah, that's often yeah. the case. It's often the case, you Leeds. see, because Leeds is the big city, but then, and Wakefield's David, a... if you go to America, and they go, where's Leeds, you go, it's north of London. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but the thing is, even in the UK, people have no clue where Wakefield is, you know, and of course it's right by the M1 motorway, yeah. and you know. Yeah. Uh, so people get, have heard of it but don't actually know where it is. So it's not a, you wouldn't say it was a hugely significant city it's in many people's town, eyes. It's isn't it? It's got a few kind of famous playwrights well, and things like that, hasn't it? Well, it's got the, the Hepworth Gallery, which yeah. is this sort of the, the, if you like, sculpture or modern sculpture, yeah, yeah. Um, which I don't, um, okay. you know, I'm not a fan of really, but it's got that, I suppose, if you like that sort of thing. But it's interesting, it has no university. Um, which most big cities do. It doesn't have a, a football team, which most cities do. Mm. I think it's the largest city not to have one. It doesn't have a rugby league side. Mm. Um, it has a massive cathedral, though. It does right have a big cathedral. It does have a big cathedral. But so it's, in one sense, it does, you're not going to get a lot of young students moving here and staying. So it's different from other cities that, that have universities. So, it's, it's, so the, the population is pretty static, I would say. 
um, there. But we came down, we, my wife and I were in York for seven years. We led a church in York. And, um, and then around about 2011, there was a, a, a church in Wakefield that had been, it, it, it had been struggling for a number of years. It hadn't grown for quite a long time. And so we came down, we had friends in the church, we came down to lead that, that church. Uh, we bought a building in a place called Osset, which is just on the outskirts of Wakefield. It's a, it's a town in its own right. And the church kind of grew um, uh, there and has done, has done well. And there's a, there's a good team there, a good leadership team in the church, and it's doing really well. But personally, they, they might listen to this podcast, so yeah. let's just say they're doing really well, aren't they? I was yeah, they're doing really well. Yeah, the church is growing, people's lives are being changed, and the church itself does a lot of great things in the community, yeah. so they're, they're well regarded in the community, so they're well established. But for me, my, you know, and, you know, my role, I feel, was to go, down, to go in there and, and basically put the groundwork in, or, or you know, we might say put a foundation in, really, for, for what happened afterwards. But once that was done, I immediately start thinking, well, what's the next thing? I couldn't see myself... Um, you know, being in the same church, the same place for thirty years, you know that that just wasn't me. For me, I'm, I'm always looking. Well, what's the well, next you, challenge? You seem quite entrepreneurial in, in that sense, and and, and that, again, that just yeah. remind me of what you've said about George Muller. He seems to be quite entrepreneurial in terms of what he sees a need and he wants to. Yeah, well, I don't. I personally don't think I am entrepreneurial. I think okay. I, I know other guys. I've got friends who I, who I think are really entrepreneurial. Okay. I, in fact, I would say you, Mark, you're more entrepreneurial than I am. For me, um, <laughs> this this could go on saying no. I don't think no. I'm entrepreneurial either. Well, I don't. It's not. It's not. I don't. I personally don't think I am. But maybe you know. I'm, maybe I need to check my definitions. I don't think I am. But anyway, um, I I knew that there was there was something else for 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 my wife and I to do, and and we have a real a real desire to do again to change society to change something a culture, and we'd been living in and around Wakefield for a number of years. And we've been driving through the area we live in now, which is in the south side of the city, an area called Agbrig. And um, my wife, because she works in a number of schools, she's very much aware of all the social problems that are going on in the city and a lot of the needs that are in the city. And we just began to have this real sense within us. We wanted to do something to to help our city, to, to change our city and to have a, have a positive effect. Wonderful. So we had that sense for quite a while. We didn't know what to do with that. And then, again, to cut a very long story short, we, we, we became part of a, a church planting organisation and they have backed us to move into this new area to, to help us get started to begin a new Christian community in this area, which at the moment doesn't have very much of a Christian community. Mm -hmm. So there are good churches in the city, but you know, if you look at the size of the population for Wakefield, which is over 300,000, you know, we're a drop in the bucket. And so therefore we want to come in and actually have a real... Um, positive influence and start to change the culture because the area we live in is quite a high area for crime and drugs and those kind of things but we feel so happy to be here we've had people asking us why we've been why we moved in and uh, you know when other people are moving out and we just say well we're thrilled and I actually say I believe God sent us and then they look at you as if you're mad and walk on <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think you're going to and, and again because obviously again I want to reflect it back to the book um, George uh, made a huge difference to these kids and their lives. Um, what do you think you're going to do then in this area? You say you want to make a difference. What difference will that be? Well, for me, it's finding out what the needs actually are um, and, and then trying to make a difference that way. Now, one of the, I suppose the area we're in, um, there's a very, a very high ethnic population, non-British, non so people from Eastern Europe, um, people from uh, Pakistan or, or Pakistani origin, um, and also Wakefield is a sanctuary city, so we have a lot of refugees, particularly Arab-speaking refugees. So there's a, there's a, there's needs in those communities that you know some real needs there, um, and people are trying to assimilate. So one of the things that that, that I plan to do is to um, teach English as a foreign language and look at how I can um, help people to you know to culturally um, assimilate with us, yeah. and um, and then hopefully be able to to you know reach them with the love of Jesus and, and change their lives that way. Um, and that's what motivates us. And, and a lot of people who are not, not believers, not people of faith, maybe don't understand that because you think, well, what's in it for us? Well, we're not doing this for the money or for the, let's say, the kudos. We're doing it because we genuinely want to, to help people and, yeah. and change their lives. Yeah. So, that's, so that's, yeah. yeah. 
just a little plug, what's the church called? Resurrection Church. Okay, all right. So well, we are just I'll starting, first year. Okay. Um, uh, I'll ask you at the end of the podcast for any kind of contact details if we want to know more and things like that. Um, okay, so that's, that's been really interesting to hear about George and for me to learn a little bit about who he is and yep. uh, attracts me to want to know more, definitely. Let's now move on to your final book. Now, uh, in the podcast I did a number of weeks ago with Daryl Tunningley, he also had this as one of his favourite books. And so the book I'm talking about is Letters to the Church by Francis Chan. Yeah. So I think it's going to be really interesting to compare what he pulled out, but why it intrigued him, interested him, and compare it and contrast it to to yourself as well. So again, maybe uh, listeners might not have listened to that podcast yet, and if not, why not? Go, go back and listen to it. But if they haven't, could you give us a, a brief rundown about what the book is, and maybe who indeed Francis Chan is as well? Well, again, in, in, in your question about my three favourite books, I mean, the two first books, obviously, are books that I think have impacted me and, and that I read some years ago. Yeah. The, this, this book by Francis Chan is a book that I've read in the last, um, the last couple of years since it came out. And um, and again, I couldn't put it down. It was a real page turner for me, um, uh, going through it. Francis Chan is an Asian American pastor. Obviously, Chan would be a, a bit of a giveaway there. But Asian American origin, who planted a church in California, which became a really big mega church in American terms. So I think sort of four or five thousand people there, and. Uh, he went on a, his own personal journey but he realised that even though again in the eyes of the, the Christian world he was a huge success he's an amazing speaker though. oh he's very very good, good speaker very good so communicator you can, see, you can see why people are attracted to that yes and then the message that he's bringing absolutely is life changing absolutely but the thing that the thing that was the, 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 the book Letters to the Church really is his own journey because what he realises is that what he is building doesn't actually look like the church he sees in the New Testament. It doesn't look like the church that he believes that God actually wants. So the church he, as he, um, that he's built, in his own eyes, has become basically a very large preaching centre where people come en masse to hear him speak. To see him. To see so, him. So the thing that he's him. gifted at and skilled at yep. is actually the thing that he's beginning to see in, in this book. Yep. As something that's, you know, it, people are coming for the wrong reasons. Is it, would, that, would that be? Well, I wouldn't say they're coming for the wrong reasons. They're coming to hear him. But the but the, the point of the book is this: that the the church is meant to be a body where everybody functions. And of course, his main point is that in the church that he had built or he had established, there were some people that were functioning, and everyone else was coming to watch them function, mm. not functioning themselves. So the church becomes a spectator sport rather than a participation sport, if you like. Yeah. And um, I think that's the main point of the book. And then he, he so he basically takes you through the journey. But eventually, what happens is he steps down from leading the church that he has been leading goes on a journey, an actual journey, to look at the church in places like China, the underground wow. church over there, and in other sort of countries um, in the Far East, India for, uh, as well, and um, and looks at how the, the church basically grows from the grassroots, grows from meeting in homes, and um, and by word of mouth functions. And, um, and that obviously has such an impact on him that he comes back to America, goes to another city, San Francisco. What was the time scale there? Did you go for a year, two years? How, how I think, it was, well, again, you're, you're, that's, a, that's a, um, a question. With it. I, the impression you get from the book is it was maybe a three or four year journey wow, okay. between you know, what he did and, and what eventually became. I mean, we should probably mention Francis Chan is quite a successful author as well, isn't oh, yeah. he? So he, he communicates he's, he's verbally very well. Yeah, he's very, very he's good. He's written stuff very good as well. So obviously he had some support through that, I would imagine, through sales of his books, to enable him to go on such a, a pilgrimage, as it were. <laughs> I would hope so. Yeah, yeah I think yeah. it's quite a lot of Because not all of us are going to be able to 
just do that, are we? We're not, we're not going to be able to go, well, let's go see what the church is like at the other side of the world or whatever. Well, you, you, I think you'd have to have some support to do that, really, wouldn't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> okay. So he goes on this, 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 this journey, uh, this actual literal journey of investigating all these churches, comes yeah. back to the US and... Um, starts again. Wow. But, but starts again according to a pattern that he'd actually seen biblically in terms of the, the church meeting in, in homes, it being more community focused and that looking to see everybody within the, the local, these local small group churches to begin to function together. What, what happened to the, the, the previous large church that he'd been ministering? As far as my way, it carried on with a different leadership. Yeah, he, he didn't come back and change that church. No, no. He, he, he passed it on, went on his journey. Exactly. Then came back. And that's the thing, because I think, again, in... In the Christian world, I mean, we see that even in the UK. There are certain people who have a faith, who do believe in Jesus, who do have a sort of Christian faith, but they actually are they are consumers rather than participants. They, they actually just want to go somewhere where they'll get an encouraging message, they'll have some you know, great musicians, some great worship that they can join in with, and have a cappuccino and go home, and that's the extent of it. Now, it's sad to say... But that is what's what's happening in in, uh, in the uh, the church, not just in the UK but in America and in some parts of the world. But when you read the Bible, when I read the Bible, that's not what I see. And so the reason the book for me um, resonated so strongly and impacted me so much was because I think a lot of the things that he says are things that I had been coming to myself over a period of years that I'd been seeing. Um, in, in my own life in ministry and in the church generally and I just I thought to myself this is what I'm doing or what I have been doing is not really what, what God's plan is it's not what God wants and so for me I'd gone on my own journey and then when I when I picked up this book and read the book he was articulating beautifully a lot of the things um, that I'd been um, mulling over and thinking about and reading elsewhere and um, and his book really helped me to be able to verbalise um, and articulate well what I'd been seeing personally. And it gave me, it strengthened me because it, it helped me to see that there are other people in the world who are seeing the same things that I'm seeing and doing the same things that I believe God has called me to do. And that in itself gives you great encouragement in order to take the steps that you know you need to take. So what, what is Francis asking the church to do? So it's letters to the church. I'm assuming that's the, you know, the, the big is he, is he writing to the Western Church predominantly? I think so. so I US, think so. EU, yeah, I think yeah. so. The, the, well, I suppose what he's asking the church to do is to is to get back to a level of authenticity, and I think that word, I think that that, that word authentic is such a um, such a great word, and I think that's what people these days are looking for. You know, there was a there was a, a period, you know, going back twenty years or so that, that you know we had this this phrase. Uh, in church circles taught to being seeker friendly and you had a face we want to be seeker friendly and really what that you know boiled down to in, in, in some cases and again I don't want to point fingers at anybody that's not my intention with I'm not here to judge uh, other things but what it you know the impression I got was that it was almost like the Holy Spirit who is who is God's presence in the church was was really relegated out of church services and the church became more of a um, an environment where people could not really be challenged at all. It was it was you know, you know, great stage production, great music, a really good pep talk, but actually kind of tickled your ears, but really tickled your ears, but never actually changed anybody's lives. Right. You know, and I and I used to think to myself, well, what are people actually seeking? Surely, um, people are seeking. Is God real? Is God real? Is this is this genuine? You know. Um, you know, if I want great entertainment, I'll go to the theatre, I'll go and see a, a band. I don't want to go to church to be entertained. I want to go to church to meet God. And to I have some of those, those, those big questions answered. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, and that's the thing. Even if, even if the answer isn't exactly what they might like. Yeah. Now, yeah. Francis Chan, in his book, to go back to the book again, he, he, he makes this little analogy. He says, you know, I was talking, he said he was talking to his daughter, who was, I don't know, eight, nine years old, whatever, and he says, you know, he said, if, I, if, I was, if it was your birthday... And the only thing we did for your birthday was buy a cake and then invite your friends to come and celebrate you. He said, how many people in your class or your school would come? And his daughter said, maybe two or three. And then he says, uh, he says now if I had a local amusement arcade 
and gave everybody a bag of quarters in, in America for all the machines and, you know, hired a clown and all these other entertainments and put on a big feast, how many would come? And she said, well, the whole school would turn up. The point being, they're not turning up for the daughter, they're turning up for the entertainment that's been put on. Excellent. Now, that was, a, I thought, to me, that's the crux of the book, that's the centrepiece of the book, because... He's basically, you know, in the in the Eastern Church, if you like, and and when he when he travelled to China, they, you know, these people were no great bands, no world renowned speakers. When they were getting together to pray, they were coming to meet with with God. Just, first just, and foremost, just just to help people understand a little bit, who might be listening who have no idea of of the church in China, there is the official church, isn't there? There's, there's yeah. The, there's the, 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 the state-ordained church, yeah, the state-organised church. And they're, they're not allowed to read the whole of the Bible. There are bits that are removed, yeah. aren't they? In the yeah. sense that they can only worship at certain points uh, uh, in, in the week. Um, so is Francis Chan, isn't in the book, he's not talking about that. He's talking oh, about no, no. The, the other, the underground He's talking about the underground church. He's talking about, again, people who have come to a genuine faith and want to pursue what, what God describes or what the Bible describes as the church is meant to be mm. and to function that way. And I mean, I mean, Francis Chan is a great author, but for me, um, you know, one of the great founding apostles in the Chinese church, and again, another great author was a guy called Watchman Nee. And uh, I've got pretty much every book he's ever written. And for me, personally, next to the Apostle Paul, the greatest Christian writer of all time, um, because he... He really managed to um, write down um, really good instruction, really good doctrine, really good teaching for that underground church, which he was involved in going back into the 1920s and 30s. Mm. Um, so so there's, there's, there's something over there in those churches in oppressed societies and places where there's great persecution, which actually is an authentic faith, because you can't be a consumer over there. You just, you, you know, because you're risking your life and your liberty in order to say that you're a follower of Jesus. So there's no, um, there's no wishy-washy Christians in those churches, in those countries. You can't be, because really you're, you're, you're putting your, your whole future on the line. It may mean you can't get a job. It may mean that you can't get any state benefits. It may mean that you, as I say, go to jail. So there's, so there's a genuineness and authenticity that's, that's there that in the West with our freedom and our liberty, which I'm not decrying, um, that I think we've lost. Mm -hmm. And um, I think when persecution comes, if persecution comes, which in a sense it is in the, this country. I mean, if you if you look at the United States, if we go into politics again, I'm not going to mention parties <laughs> or anything, but in the yeah. United States, you may get non-religious politicians with no faith or no visible you know, expression of faith will claim to be Christians in order to gain credibility with the electorate. So, you know, all of a sudden, for example, the current president is who's never, as far as I'm aware, had any kind of Christian leanings or Christian faith, suddenly now is trying to appeal to the Christian, you know, population in America in order to gain votes. Now that's interesting. In the UK, the opposite is true. In the UK politicians, if they say they have a faith, they're vilified. So in America you would get some kudos by having a faith or being a Christian. In the UK, so for example, the leader of the Liberal Democrats, Tim Farron, a few years ago, you know, he was leading the Liberal Liberal Party, but his own faith stance made him um, a, a pariah in his own party, and he had to stand down because of his faith. So, to me, when you look at those kind of things and the culture that we have now in the UK, it's only a matter of time. I don't know that people are, people may get jailed for for standing up for what they see is right. That may happen, but that in itself is going to cause, I think, within the church. Um, people to really uh, count the cost of following Jesus mm. and make a real decision because if you're going to stand for your faith in this country, it's going to become increasingly more costly. Mm. Now, that already happens in these countries, you know, in communist countries, in, in Muslim countries like Iran at the moment where, where Christians are being persecuted and the Christian community worldwide in many of these countries is suffering severe persecution. And um, and I think it's only a matter of time before um, before we start to see that increasing in the UK more than it is just now. So that's why for me this book is so mm. important. Well, that's interesting because you made a comparison there between the UK and the US uh, in terms of people's uh, where, you know, politicians and where they stand in terms of having a faith or not having a faith. Um, but you said that this book is one that is written predominantly to the Western yeah, church. Absolutely. But, but there's a difference in the cult. So he isn't writing to the culture of, say, for example, the UK and the US. He's writing to the church 
directly because clearly if there's if within culture there's a different approach to yeah. Christendom as you know from US to UK he's not writing to that he's very specifically writing to the church yeah. is he having I asked this of Darrell as well I'll ask it of you in your opinion in the book um, is he having a is he having a go at the church then is, is he is he having a, a real moan is he having a real is, is he judging them or is there what where's his what, what, how's he approaching these, these things that he sees are issues? Well, the word judge is actually a good word to use because, you know, biblically, this is where people get themselves into all sorts of trouble. We are meant to, there is meant to be judgment in the church. Within the within church. Within the church, yeah. Um, my, I'm not called to judge outside the church. I'm not, you know, when people get all yeah. sort of het up about things that go on in the world and, and the, you know, the morality of the world, that's not our job to judge that. But we do have a job to judge what's inside the church and by judge not in a condemnatory way but we have to judge it in line with what does the bible actually say what does what does jesus the head of the church actually want we have to judge that and that has to be our plumb line in terms of our, our practice and our, our culture and our mission all those things um do have to be judged and regularly because we can you know, even when you start off well, and, and most Christian denominations start off well as quite radical, and then they become acceptable, they be, you know, and they settle down into fitting in with the culture around them. And when that happens um, over a period of years or decades, we lose our edge and we get away from the things that we actually started off thinking were fundamentally important. You know, one of my, again, mentioning books, or mentioning, you know, sort of heroes, when you look at the early Methodist church, you know, one of my favourite uh, guys in, in Methodism was George Whitfield. Um, when you read his story and you look at the, uh, the the meetings that those early Methodists had in homes where the Holy Spirit was clearly present, where miracles were taking place, where there was a real sense of the power of God, um, the, compared to the Methodist church of today, it bears no resemblance to that, you know, in most cases, um, I would say, in the UK. So I think a lot of movements start off very well and, and, and are, you know, really exciting and edgy to begin with, and then they level off. And so therefore the church has gone through lots and lots of revolutions in the last 2,000 years, almost to try and get back to what is authentic, what does God want? And I think Francis Chan's book, Letters to the Church, is one of those key moments I think if this book gets the um the recognition and the and the um is, is read as widely as I think it should be, I think it's a revolutionary book Wouldn't to bring it be quite back. challenging to so it's not challenging for you in, well it is challenging for you but in a different way because you obviously your 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 thoughts and the way you're thinking about church is is, is pretty much starting to align with, with what you've read in this book. Yeah. Um but say you've got a church that's that's it's exciting, and I, I take your point. Let's let's add that into that. Where you know, are people getting excited about the presentation rather than the, yeah. the actual gospel message? Um, but the, how would they respond? It's like leaders of those kind of churches where it's seemingly how would they respond to this book? Do you think will, well, will they be challenged in a, in a, a, a negative sense? Or, or well, absolutely, well, yeah, I think I think they will. I mean, again, <laughs> you have to, you know, I've, I've been I've led. You know, two churches prior to this. I'll give you. I'll give you an example. I mean, um, the the last church I led. Well, both churches that I led. We ended up. We had a, a church building. We bought a bit in York. We bought an old pub, which we converted into a church building. And in Osset, we bought a temperance hall. Um, ironically, um, which we turned into a church building. Now the buildings themselves are great. Um, and we do. We're able to do a lot of things, and we're able to serve the community using the building as well. Um, but the building becomes a bit of a focus, and not just a focus in terms of all our time and attention, but also in terms of our money as well. Mm. And so buildings it, aren't bad things, because like you said, no, of course they're, they're, they're not, they, they not bad things. That are they're a very useful tool, and you need somewhere to meet, especially when you get to a certain size. You've got to have somewhere to meet. But if the building is is your your sole focus and is taking up all your time, energy, and money. Tails to, the, tails the dog. to the detriment of actually reaching the world with the good news of Jesus, then yeah, the tail's wagging the dog. You've got a you've got a problem there, mm. and um, and a building at the end of the day is only a tool. So I think that's why we need to you know one of the things that he he talks about in the book is the fact of getting away from having these buildings which we consider holy and we consider oh this is the house of God. The house of God is not a building. The house of God is the people. That's what the house is, and therefore wherever the people are, that's where the church is, and so. So it would be a challenge. Like I say, the church that I led, 
you know, prior to this, I've got a great building, it's a great, um, you know, blessing the community, and I'm not suggesting they go and sell it and, you know, meet in a, a local hall or whatever, I'm not suggesting that, but what I'm saying is, for me, starting again now, it, it does make me really consider and where we spend our money, where do we spend our time, how much of a focus can we have on other things now that I don't have to worry about um, a building, I don't have to worry about the roof, slates falling off the roof and repainting it and, you know, updating a projector screen. I don't have to worry, I mean, it's great. Having had all these years of, you know, trustees meetings and finance meetings and, you know, looking after this building, actually, I'm in this wonderful position where we're free. We can meet in homes, we can, you know, we can meet anywhere, uh, the churches, wherever we are, and that's actually really great. Now, in a, you know, a year or two's time, we'll, if, as we grow, and I'm, and I'm sure we will grow, you know, we'll be faced with logistical problems and maybe I've got to revisit that one again. But one of the, the great things about this authentic church is the fact that it, the church is wherever we are. And that's what I'd like to see. But wherever you build, wherever you go, how you go forward into, you'll do it through the lens of the, the things. Yeah. Uh, and how you're thinking now. Absolutely. Which has been influenced by this. Yeah. One of the things been influenced by this book. Absolutely. Letters to the church. Where can people find out more about you? So do you have a, a, a public Instagram or public Facebook or does the church, Resurrection Church, I believe is the name, so is there a Yeah, website? well, well, if I can say, we are really in the very early stages. So okay. we are currently building a website. We do have a, um, a web address, which is resurrectionchurch.net, uh, which, you know, maybe by the time your podcast is, is published, we might have something actually up there. But we are present on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter, Resurrection Church in Wakefield. You do can you have a public us. profile on there? People might want to find out more about you or... Is it, all, is it all locked down friends only? I mean. uh, no, it's not locked down friends only, but we're just in the, well, like I say, we're in the process of building a, a profile as we get going. But like I say, you're here, we're at the beginning of February in 2020, yeah. and really we only started uh, meeting together over just two months ago. So we are really in those very early stages. So, you know, I would imagine the, the weeks and months ahead will start to um, be more visible and uh, in terms of online stuff, but, but more importantly, we want to be more visible in terms of the impact we're making in the community around us as we start to reach our city with the love of Jesus. That's the plan anyway. David, it's been beautiful. It's been such a privilege to sit here and talk about these three books. It's been great you. to see you. Thank you. Um, if you want to know more about um, um, us, as in my three books, then just pop on to our website, my3books.co.uk or my3books.com. And you can always email me at hello at my3books.co.uk. Uh, we're on all the old social media stuff as well. Just search for my three books, except for Twitter, where you have to search for my number three books so my three books i'm still a bit bitter not being able to get that username <laughs> but there we are um, anyway until next time happy reading welcome to the end bit of the podcast the bit where i say thank you for listening no, genuinely, thank you. There are quite a lot of podcasts to choose from and you chose to spend your time with this one. If you liked what you've heard, please make sure you subscribe. And if you could leave a rating on your preferred podcast provider, that would be so helpful in helping this podcast reach more people. Please do get in touch via our social media accounts if you'd like. Oh, and share the love via the links. Word of mouth also helps too. Visit my3books.com for all the info.